This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure and honor again uh, to welcome Dr. David Gersenson, who is a professor in the Department of Gynecological Oncology and Reproductive Medicine here at MD Anderson, also former chair of this department. And certainly uh, it, it would take uh, almost probably half or this full podcast if we went through all of the achievements and accomplishments that my uh, my uh, colleague and friend, Dr. David Gershenson has achieved. So certainly it is a, a pleasure to have him back on the podcast. Um, and the reason for this podcast is uh, obviously the, the very recent and important publication in the journal Lancet uh, titled Tremetinib versus Standard of Care in Patients with Recurrent low-grade serous ovarian cancer, uh, GOG-281, an international randomized open-label multi-center phase two, three trial. David, welcome. Thank you, Pedro. And uh, thanks so much for your interest in our study and the opportunity to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, and congratulations once again on, um, on uh, uh, completing this study and certainly uh, publishing it in, uh, in the journal Lancet. Um, so I wanted to uh, first, because, you know, certainly we have a lot of questions that we wish to cover. And um, so I wanted to first start by asking um, if you can discuss the, the key elements that differentiate low-grade serous carcinoma from high-grade serous carcinoma. Sure. So just a, a bit of history. Uh, LVO Silva really was the driving force behind the binary grading system for serous carcinoma starting back in about 1990. He and I began to discuss this. And of course, uh, eventually in 2004, Anais Malpica, one of his colleagues, published uh, uh, the paper on the uh, binary grading system. But basically, the primary feature is nuclear atypia. And so if a serous tumor has a mild to moderate nuclear atypia, that may be a sign of a low-grade serous carcinoma, whereas marked atypia uh, could be a feature of high-grade serous carcinoma. And then the secondary feature is mitotic count. And so uh, for low-grade serous carcinoma, 12 or fewer uh, mitoses per 10 hyperfields uh, are uh, a feature of low-grade serous carcinoma and uh, more than 12 uh, mitosis per 10 hyper feels a feature of high-grade serous carcinoma. Those are the two main uh, distinguishing factors. Great. And now the, um, the study, uh, focusing certainly on, uh, on these low-grade uh, serous carcinoma, um, I wonder also if you can talk a little bit about the, the common mutations found in low-grade serous carcinoma. Sure. So we know that the low-grade serous carcinoma is driven somewhat by the MAP kinase signaling pathway. And the most common mutations within that pathway for low-grade serous carcinoma are, first of all, KRAS in about 20 to 40% of cases, NRAS in a roughly 10% of cases, and BRAF in 5 to 10% of cases. And so if you take them as an aggregate, about 50% of low-grade serous carcinomas will have uh, a mutation associated in, uh, in a low-grade serous carcinoma. 
Great. in the MAP kinase pathway. Excellent. So now um, targeting it with uh, trametinib, um, wondering if you just could explain to the audience uh, what is trametinib and, uh, and why did it make sense to, to study this agent in patients with low-grade ovarian cancer? So uh, as I mentioned, we knew from the early 2000s that the MAP kinase signaling pathway uh, was very prominent in the pathogenesis of low-grade serous carcinoma. So it made a lot of sense once uh, pharmaceuticals developed uh, drugs that targeted that pathway to study them in this rare subtype. Um, trametinib is a MEK inhibitor, MEK inhibitor, that targets MEK1 and MEK2 within uh, the MAP kinase pathway. And so it was a natural progression once we uh, knew more about the biology of the, of the low-grade serous carcinoma in terms of mutational profiling to use a, to use a MEK inhibitor such as trametinib. There was a prior study with another MEK inhibitor, selumetinib, which was really the first phase two study that came out of the uh, GOG. Um, and that showed a 15% response rate uh, in patients with uh, recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma. So trametinib was thought to possibly be a, a stronger or more potent MEK inhibitor. And that's when we eventually uh, advanced to this phase two, three study. Great. So then um, getting on to this study, GOG 281, um, what was the primary objective of, uh, of the study? Primary objective was progression-free survival. This was a study, uh, again, in women who had recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma and had measurable disease. So the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and then there were a number of secondary endpoints. Great. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that in, in a second. But one of the things also that, um, obviously, particularly in these types of cancer that we couldn't potentially call them rare cancers or, or, or the low grades, uh, pathology review. Obviously, that's uh, very essential um, when uh, studying these tumors. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the pathology analysis for the patients in GOG-281? Yes, this was one of the first trials in which we used a prospective pathology review by a pathology panel. So there were three pathologists in the U.S. and a panel of three pathologists in the U.K. And every case uh, prior to enrollment for eligibility was screened by these two panels. And in each of the panels, two, at least two of the three pathologists had to agree that this was a low-grade serous carcinoma because we wanted to make sure we screened out any serous borderline tumors or the very rare low-grade, high-grade serous uh, tumor patients. And so it was done uh, prospectively and very, very carefully by the two panels. Great. Um, now, I wanted to focus a little bit about um, the, the strategy with regards to the, the study design uh, and the dosing of the trametinib as well. And if you can talk a little bit about the, the control group. Yeah, so this was a one-to-one -one randomization uh, between trametinib and uh, a control group that included five different standard of care agents. Uh, and those were two uh, endocrine therapies, letrozole and tamoxifen, and three chemotherapy agents, pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, 
weekly paclitaxel and topotecan. And so patients uh, who were eligible could not have received all five standard of care options, otherwise they were ineligible. Also in the randomization, they were uh, the investigator had to declare if the patient were randomized to the standard of care arm, they had to declare ahead of time which of the drugs they would pick, which they would choose for the patient. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and uh, with regards to the, and, and I, uh, just uh, getting back to the dosing of the tremendin, um, what was the, uh, what was the dosing that was used in the study? So the dosing was two milligrams daily of trametinib. That was the, that was the zero dose. And then there were two potential dose reductions to 1.5 milligrams a day, or the lowest dose was one milligram daily. Perfect. And you had mentioned that the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, but I know that there were a number of uh, secondary endpoints as well. What else did you look at? So uh, one of them was uh, objective response rate, very important. Um, duration of response included in that. Uh, quality of life, adverse events. Uh, and then we also wanted to look at as, as a secondary endpoint, the association of MAP kinase pathway mutations uh, with uh, the, the clinical outcomes as well. And then overall survival was the final secondary endpoint. Excellent. So obviously, this is a, this is a big study, uh, 72 hospitals in the United States, uh, 12 hospitals, I believe, in the, in the UK. Um, what did you find? What were the main results? What is the, the take-home message from GOG 281? Yeah, so uh, you know, talking about the primary endpoint of progression-free survival, we found a... Uh, statistically significant better result with trametinib than standard of care. So the median progression-free survival was 13 months versus 7.2 months for the standard of care group. Uh, objective response, uh, some of the secondary endpoints, objective response was 26% for trametinib versus 6.2% for standard of care. Duration of response was 13.6 months for trametinib versus only 5.9 months with a standard of care. Um, and those, those were some of the, uh, the main findings. Uh, the other one I would mention is overall survival. There was not a statistical difference in overall survival between the two arms, but there certainly was a, a trend. And so the uh, median overall survival for trametinib was 38 months versus only uh, 29 months for the standard of care arm. And, yeah, and that, that took into consideration the fact that there was crossover in this trial. And so uh, because of that, the patients in the, who started out in the standard of care arm, also many of them had already received trametinib at the data cutoff. And so that obviously has some impact on overall survival. Yeah, and, and actually that brings me to, to the next question. It's actually posed by one of our uh, fellows in the journal, Felix Borea from uh, Spain. Um, he asked, you know, certainly there was crossover allowed in the study. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this and how you consider that this might have impacted the results? And I think you addressed a little bit about it uh, already, but yeah, can you, uh, can you tell us about it? 
Yeah, just, you know, again, we, we knew ahead of time. The, re the reason we even included crossover in the trial was to make as available trametinib to as many women as we could. And we knew if there were not crossover, many women would be uh, reluctant to enroll in the trial because they had a 50-50 chance of not receiving uh, the experimental agent. So that was the reason we uh, built a crossover into the trial. And again, when we did that, we, we clearly understood uh, before the trial opened that it, could, that it would impact uh, to some degree overall survival. Yeah. Um, so now, obviously, very impressive results, very impressive numbers. And of course, obviously, the next question from patients is, what were the most common adverse events? What are the side effects in the trametinib group? And, um, and also, I was wondering if you can elaborate on, you know, levels of dose reductions and, and percentage of patients that had to discontinue trametinib because of toxicity. Sure. So the... <clears throat> The most common side effect that we encountered was skin rash, acneiform or maculopapular skin rash. Uh, and, you know, you really always want to look at the grade three and four adverse events more closely. And so there was a 13% rate of grade three, four uh, skin rash in the trametinib group. The other common uh, adverse events included anemia in 13%, hypertension 12%, diarrhea in 10%, and nausea in 9%. And then the final one was fatigue in 8% of patients. And, the, and again, these were the grade three and four adverse events. Um, a number of patients did require dose reductions. In fact, 70% um, uh, of the women in the trametinib arm required at least one dose reduction. Uh, so, uh, you know, we found out during the trial that trametinib is a, somewhat of a tricky drug to manage. It's not, it's not uh, simple, uh, but we learned a lot about how to manage patients on trametinib. Uh, the experience was very valuable. Um, yeah, so overall, you, 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 you consider that patients are able to tolerate this fairly well. Yeah, mo moderately well, but there are going to be patients who have such uh, adverse events that uh, they're not able to continue the drug or they're going to need one or two dose reductions. Yes. Very well. Now, you, you had mentioned also that there was um, quality of life evaluation. Um, I was wondering uh, if you can tell us a little bit about the tools that you use, the frequency of the measurements, and what, what did you find with regards to quality of life? Yes. So the tools we used to measure quality of life were the, were the FACT-O, a very uh, uh, commonly used tool. And then the other one was the FACT-GOG neurotoxicity tool. And obviously, we were interested in that related mainly to uh, the standard of care arm. Um, and we measured uh, quality of life at various time points. And what we found was that uh, at 12 weeks uh, after starting the, the trial, the trametinib group uh, had a uh, worse quality of life than the standard of care group. But at all other time points, there was no statistical difference. 
And so, uh, you know, long term, uh, we didn't believe, we don't think that uh, trametinib adversely uh, uh, affected uh, women in, in the trial that much. Okay, very well. So I um, <clears throat> want to ask you now a series of questions from, from our fellows in the Journal of, Fr the first one is from uh, Florian Joshum uh, from France. Um, she asked, did the mutation status for KRAS or BRAF or NRAS have any impact on the outcomes? And should we routinely check for these when considering somebody for trametinib? Well, let me start. Yeah, so let me start by telling you a little bit about what we found in the trial. We did, uh, of course, um, have uh, obtained tissue on all patients, or at least that was the goal. We did not have FFPE tissue for every patient in the trial, although we did also have a frozen biopsy for pretty much most of the patients in the trial. Uh, we have to date only utilized the FFPE tissue, and we were able to find a good quality tissue in 134 patients of the total of 260 patients in the trial. So you know, roughly just slightly over half the patients in the trial, which was a little disappointing because uh, larger numbers would have helped. Um, and then we, we analyzed that using whole exome sequencing for uh, KRAS, BRAF, and NRAS mutations. And then we uh, correlated that with response. And the, our statisticians used a very rigorous uh, uh, analysis of multiple comparison adjustment, which uh, I had never been uh, familiar with uh, previously, but it is uh, quite complex. And what we found was that there was certainly was a trend, uh, both in terms of uh, progression-free survival and response for uh, uh, patients who had one of these mutations to have a better outcome than if they didn't have a mutation. However, neither of these was statistically significant using this uh, rigorous analysis. Um, but if you, you know, look in the face of it, the women who received trametinib, if they had, if they, their tumor uh, contained a mutation, there was a 50% response rate to trametinib if they did not, if the tumor did not have a mutation and they were treated with trametinib, the response rate was only 9%. Mm. There was quite a difference. But again, using this, it was not statistically significant. But what I would say, though, uh, and we've, uh, we've discussed this among uh, several experts over the past year and since the trial ended, we don't believe that women, any, any woman who has low-grade serous carcinoma should not receive trametinib. In other words, even if their tumor does not contain one of these mutations, there still is a, a chance of response. Um, so we would not uh, recommend withholding the drug from any woman with low-grade serous carcinoma. And then the final thing I would say about this is that we believe that the results from our study, uh, while they're very interesting, our hypothesis generating, we clearly are going to need further studies to really get at uh, the value of a biomarker in uh, the selection of treatment for women with this rare subtype. 
Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> another question that comes from Natalie from Jamaica. Um, she asked, uh, were all the tumors tested for estrogen receptor positivity? And how might this impact response to hormonal therapy? Great question. Uh, and the answer, unfortunately, is no. We uh, have not tested these tumors for uh, ER or PR. Now, we, 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 can, we will do that. Uh, but that will be part of a secondary publication. Uh, but for this uh, primary publication, uh, that work uh, has not been, not been performed. Okay. Um, this next question is actually from several fellows. Um, do, do you have any data on first or secondary reductive surgery for patients included in this trial? And also were reduction surgeries for recurrent disease performed in these patients? Well, no, no secondary surgeries were performed during uh, the time the patients were on the trial. Uh, one of the eligibility criteria, remember, was uh, measurable disease. So it, they could have had secondary cytoreduction prior to enrollment in the trial, as long as they still had measurable disease. But that was not something uh, that we... Uh, captured uh, in detail. We do have uh, in information about prior therapies uh, before enrolling in the trial, but uh, how, how detailed it is in terms of the secondary side of reduction, uh, I'm not certain. Okay. Great question. Uh, <laughs> this next question is from Demetrius Nasiudis uh, at UPenn. Uh, what was the, the medium time the response for, for patients who had an objective response. And also among responders, was the duration of response pro more prolonged for patients who harbor an uh, MAP uh, a kinase pathway mutation? Another excellent question. Another one that uh, is going to be part of a secondary publication. Uh, so that would that definitely we're going to be reviewing when did the responses actually occur? How long were women on the drug trametinib before they responded? And, and also uh, some of the other things you've mentioned, but as, as of yet, that's not been done. We are, we are uh, honestly uh, just about to embark on that analysis with our uh, NRG statisticians. This next question is from Felix Boria in, uh, in Spain, and he talks about uh, the impact of uh, maintenance, trametinib, and um, whether that's you know certainly recommended, uh, and what are what are the potential outcomes or comparisons to just uh, the standard uh, control arm? Well, in the trial, um, we one of the things we did because we were concerned about the uh, cumulative. Uh, adverse events uh, associated with the chemo three chemotherapy drugs. We did uh, allow uh, physicians to discontinue their chemotherapy in the standard of care arm after six cycles. If uh, that was a, a decision made by the attending physician of each patient. And so that did occur in a proportion of patients. Um, Whereas the two uh, hormonal agents were continued till disease progression and also same thing for trametinib. So I'm not sure how the, uh, the fellows using the term maintenance, but I mean, the patients were 
did continue the trametinib as well as the endocrine therapies until progression. The patients who did discontinue the chemotherapy drugs after six cycles, however, could not cross over to trametinib until they progressed. So they had to remain off therapy. It was, wasn't that just because they finished in six cycles, if they hadn't had disease progression, they couldn't just go, go ahead and cross over, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, this, uh, this next question also is from Demetrius. And he asked, for the patients who progressed following initial response to trametinib, uh, did you have any molecular analysis that revealed any biomarkers of resistance? And then do you anticipate that, they, that there may be a dual upstream and downstream inhibition pathway that could be more effective than just monotherapy with trametinib in low-grade uh, serous carcinoma? Great questions. So the first question about uh, biomarkers of re uh, resistance to a MEK inhibitor, we, uh, our group at MD Anderson is very interested in that uh, question. Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. K.K. Wong, is particularly interested. We do have um, sections from the FFPE tissue from the 134 patients that he is currently staining for uh, certain biomarkers to look for uh, biomarkers of resistance. And we, he does have some clues. I don't wanna uh, give away his, uh, his findings thus far, but in the very near future, he is planning to publish on some of the preliminary findings of a uh, one or two particular biomarkers that he has discovered that, that could be uh, markers for uh, resistance. The other question you asked um, was related to, remind me. The, uh, the, it, uh, the possibility of dual therapy rather than as a single therapy. Yes. A lot of interest, and of course, some of the next uh, steps uh, will be to consider combinations with MEK inhibitors. So there's already a trial, the Veristrin trial, and it has various names that is combining a, a dual um, MAP kinase pathway uh, inhibitor with a FAC inhibitor. And then uh, based on preclinical studies, there will be other combination trials, I'm sure that, that will arise. Uh, most prominently, uh, combinations of a MEK inhibitor and a endocrine therapy uh, based on preclinical uh, findings thus far, and then possibly a combination of a MEK inhibitor and a CDK46 inhibitor. So those right now, I think, would be among uh, some of the priorities in terms of uh, other therapies. So now the next question is from uh, Demetrius Nasiudis, and he was asking about whether you had uh, detected any molecular um, analysis biomarkers of resistance. Um, and secondly, if there was any possibility for dual therapy rather than just monotherapy, in patients with uh, low-grade serous carcinoma? Yes, we're, we are very interested in biomarkers of uh, uh, MEK inhibitor resistance. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, KK Wong, is particularly interested and is actually, has actually obtained um, FFPE sections from the GOG-281 patients that he is uh, currently working on in terms of staining for some uh, biomarkers 
that he believes he has discovered in some of our um, uh, patients from MD Anderson's uh, specimens. So that's a very uh, important um, aspect in, uh, in th then will be reported in a secondary uh, publication. Um, and in terms of uh, dual uh, treatment, there's already a trial uh, ongoing, the Veristem trial that's uh, studying a dual uh, inhibitor of the MAP kinase pathway in combination with the FAC inhibitor. And then there will certainly, uh, I'm sure, be other combinations that will be studied in the future of endocrine, for instance, of an endocrine therapy and a MEK inhibitor based on preclinical findings. Great. Um, this, uh, this next question is from uh, Natalie Medley from uh, Jamaica. Again, um, she writes, with less than 5% uh, of the population being Black and less than 5% Asians in the treatment arm of the study, can it be assumed that tramitinib has the same efficacy in these populations as reported in the study as a whole? Great question. I don't have any, any information that would uh, suggest that uh, other ethnicities or races would react any differently than uh, the predominant uh, Caucasian uh, population within our trial. Um, of course, you know, you can always find things you didn't uh, anticipate. But based on the biology as we understand it currently, I would not anticipate there would be any difference. Great. Um, Felix Porea from Spain asks, um, what do you think might be the role of tremetinib in the first line setting? Yeah, we, I think we, it will be studied at some point in the first line setting. Now the question will be, will it be part of primary adjuvant therapy or will it possibly be, for instance, a maintenance therapy? As you know, currently there's a phase three uh, trial, an international trial sponsored by NRG Oncology, of which Amanda Fader is PI, I'm the co-PI. And this is a randomization in women with stage two to four low-grade serous carcinoma following primary surgery in which they are randomized to either paclitaxel carboplatinum for six cycles followed by uh, letrozole maintenance therapy versus letrozole monotherapy, no chemotherapy. That trial has accrued roughly 120 patients out of a target of 450 because it is a non-inferiority uh, design. And that trial is gonna run for about another, probably three years, maybe four years to completion of accrual. So I don't think anything, at least in the United States, is going to occur in the upfront setting in terms of a large phase three trials. There certainly could be some phase two trials that would incorporate a MEK inhibitor into frontline therapy or to frontline maintenance therapy. But right now we're focused on seeing if we can completely abandon chemotherapy in first line treatment of uh, low grade serous carcinoma. So I think it's, it's gonna be a little delay until we see any major trials uh, with the MEK inhibitor in frontline. In the frontline, yeah. So this next question is from our administrative fellow who's on the call, Arthur Shu. Um, what's the possible explanation for the different results 
between uh, GOG 281 and the Milo and Gott OV11 study? Great question. And as I've said before, it's a question I frequently receive uh, from <laughs> people. Um, and it is, it is a little complex, but let me try to elucidate. So I think there are two main reasons. What, what one has to understand is that both trials, the statistics in both trials in terms of the hazard ratio was based on two retrospective studies from the MD Anderson group. One uh, for recurrent uh, uh, use of uh, chemotherapy for recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma and the other for endocrine therapy for recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma. Both of these uh, studies included patients that were very heavily pretreated. They received many, many patients received many cycles, many different regimens. Um, and so uh, what you have to remember is the MILO trial uh, limited the number of prior, prior therapies. They limited it to three or fewer prior chemotherapy regimens. There was no limit on uh, other uh, types of treatment like endocrine therapies though. But still it was a much less uh, heavily pretreated population than the two studies on which they based their statistics. So what happened with that trial is the control group overperformed. They mm -hmm. performed better than they anticipated because their statistical design had been uh, not, you know, it was, a, it was flawed. Not, not for, you know, not, obviously not on purpose, but all they had to base it on was those two prior studies, but they didn't take into consideration how heavily uh, the patients were pretreated. Whereas in the uh, GOG-281 trial, we had no limit on prior therapy. And uh, our patient population included women who were much uh, more heavily pretreated compared to the MILO trial. So that's one big reason, I think. And so their trial, their control group overperformed uh, and was no, not statistically signif sig uh, significantly different from the benimetinib group. The other reason potentially is that there is one uh, preclinical study that compared the uh, potency of four different MEK inhibitors. And among those were benimetinib, the drug in the MILO trial, as well as trametinib, the drug in the GOG-281 trial. And trametinib was shown to be in the preclinical uh, space, a uh, much better MEK inhibitor, more effective MEK inhibitor than benimetinib. So I think those uh, are the two potential uh, reasons that uh, the MILO trial was a negative trial and uh, was closed uh, early for futility, whereas the GOG-281 trial was, uh, was really the first positive trial in uh, low-grade serous carcinoma. So if you were to um, highlight to our listeners the weaknesses of GOG-281, what would you say? Well, clearly, uh, one, one potential weakness was that um, the response was investigator-assessed. It was not, uh, you know, we didn't uh, assess PFS and response based on a central radiology review, uh, as Milo trial did. So you could say that was one potential weakness. Another weakness related you, uh, would be that um, 
if a woman was uh, randomized to the standard of care arm, uh, you could understand that the, uh, both the patient and the attending physician may be very eager for the patient to cross over to a drug that showed a lot of promise. And, you know, could they have declared disease progression earlier than otherwise uh, it occurred? We uh, very carefully reviewed the records um, to try to uh, limit, limit that. But those, I think, would be two potential uh, limitations of the trial. Great, so I just have um, two more questions and I wanted to ask you, um, the first, how do you use tromentinib in the setting of recurrent low-grade serous ovarian cancer in your practice? So one of the uh, major uh, challenges, I think, for, for all physicians treating women with low-grade serous carcinoma who have recurred is how do you sequence the many drugs that we have. So we have a number of chemotherapy agents. Um, we have bevacizumab, which uh, in retrospective uh, studies has shown good activity in low-grade serous carcinoma. We have uh, several endocrine therapies other than the aromatase inhibitors. We have fulvestrant, uh, luprolide acetate, tamoxifen, and then of course we have the MEK inhibitors. So how do you make a determination about how to sequence those? And the answer is, we don't really know. Um, you know, one of the issues that has to be considered very uh, carefully, particularly related to a MEK inhibitor, is the uh, risk-benefit ratio. Because of the adverse events that can occur, as we've already discussed with uh, a drug like trametinib, you know, do you wanna start with a drug that has fewer side effects for better quality of life and then later on go to trametinib, or should you start with trametinib since it statistically shows the, uh, that it may be the most effective drug that we have available currently for recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma? At, at the end of the day, I'm not sure it honestly matters because most of these women will, again, have prolonged overall survival, live a long time, will go through many different regimens and does it really matter whether once they develop recurrence, they receive a MEK inhibitor first or an endocrine therapy or chemotherapy with bevacizumab since they're going to uh, go through several different regimens? Um, so that's one of the major questions. Does it really, does it really matter? Great. And um, what, do you, what do you see as uh, the, the next area of um, research that looks promising for low-grade serous carcinoma? That's uh, my last question. Okay, so great question. So first of all, I would say we've only scratched the surface in understanding the biology of the MAP kinase uh, signaling pathway and of endocrine therapy, which those are the two principal targets we have right now, right? So we need to understand a lot more about the biology of uh, low-grade serous carcinoma. In 2020, due to the uh, uh, generous uh, gift from uh, a family in New Zealand, uh, we uh, established a consortium of uh, 15 investigators from seven different countries who are focused on the study of low-grade serous carcinoma, both in terms of clinical trials, as well as uh, 
preclinical uh, laboratory-based studies. And so that group is uh, going to be focused uh, on, with one of their major projects on a TCGA-like uh, study of low-grade serous carcinoma. Um, the other thing uh, we'll see, as I've already alluded to, is combination trials in the recurrent setting with a MEK inhibitor plus uh, CDK4-6 inhibitor or MEK inhibitor plus uh, endocrine therapy um, or uh, dual inhibitors. There are lots of different um, algorithms we can go through. Uh, you know, currently there's already a study for recurrent low-grade serous carcinoma with letrozole plus a CDK4-6 inhibitor. We've just completed a uh, neoadjuvant study uh, of fulvestrant and a CDK4-6 inhibitor that looks very uh, intriguing in terms of the findings. Uh, so there'll be, I think, a number of clinical trials. And I think GOG-281 has stimulated a lot of interest among both pharmaceuticals and um, uh, investigators in the, this rare subtype. So I'm very, uh, uh, very hopeful about the future for women with this, with the low-grade serous carcinoma. Fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on this really outstanding uh, study. And then again, congratulations on, uh, on all of the contributions you made to gynecologic oncology. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Pedro. It's been a pleasure being with you and Arthur.